All right, let's get started. Um, there are things in life sometimes that, like, that you just do or just happen. But if you were ever to pause and think about like why you do it or how we ever started doing this, it's just weird. Am I right? There's just some things like you just automatically do. Uh, but if you were to think about it, it, it just becomes weird. And, and one of those things is eating and drinking. You ever thought about that? Eating and drinking is a weird function. You are taking things and putting these things in your mouth and chewing these things up and swallowing these things, and those are the things that keep you alive. That's weird. Just, it's just an odd thing. Could you imagine like uh, the people when they were first thinking about eating and they're trying to choose what are the things they're going to eat, and one person sees this large animal out in a field, it's a cow, and they see a smaller animal coming up to this cow, a baby cow, and going up under the cow and, and receiving fluids from that cow? And the person is sitting back thinking, hmm, I'd drink that. That's weird. When you think about milk, milk is a weird thing. Or someone was standing back looking at that cow like, hmm, I bet there's some food inside of that thing. Probably a thing called hamburger, which is not invented yet, or maybe a tasty steak. Or then some of you are like, no, nah, I'm not into that. And some of you are watching what the cow is eating. It's eating the grass. You're like, hmm, I'd eat a lot of that grass too. That looks yummy. But it's just weird. We eat and we drink. And guess what? We have to keep eating and drinking and drinking and eating. Why? Because if we do not, we will no longer live. It's just eating and drinking is a weird thing for me. But anyway, today we're continuing this thing called, uh, this series called, um, I don't even know what we're doing today. We're going this thing called the Beatitudes of Jesus. Uh, we're going through Lent. It messes me up when I talk about food. Uh, we're going through the Beatitudes of Jesus during this season of Lent. And today, Jesus is going to take ordinary common things like eating and drinking, and yet he's going to use it to impact our lives in a very powerful way. And he's going to be talking about eating and drinking and showing us the kingdom of God. Now, these two functions, no matter where you are in life, no matter if you're a Christian or not, these two functions we all have to do as human beings. We have to eat and we have to drink. And this is what Jesus is going to be talking about. But literally, he's not talking about food, is he? He's going to be talking about something much more than that. He's going to be talking about our longings and our desires and when, it gets, when we get really honest about it, we all have longings and desires, and it feels like that we're just never satisfied. I love what Augustine or Augustine, depends on where you're from, he says it like this. He says, you have made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. And a lot of us coming here this morning, include myself, our heart gets restless at times. And so let's see what Jesus has got to say about that. If you've got a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to spend our time today, Matthew 5. And if you remember, if you were here back previous to the Lent season, we said we're not going to put like the scriptures on the screen. We'll put the references. Why? Because during this season, we really want to push all of us into bringing our Bibles and reading our Bibles. And so you're in luck. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, you're going to need a Bible. And we have those in English and Spanish on those tables in front of us. And also at Center Point, there are free gift to you. And maybe for some of you, you want, a, I guess for lack of better terms, a fancier Bible. If you notice when you walk out of here on the right, there's like a shelf with a bunch of different Bibles. You can look through like large print Bibles, study Bibles, student Bibles, and all that. And there's an easy way to order those so you can have a Bible in your hand. And for some of you tech-savvy people, you have your, uh, your phone or your iPad with you. You can download the Uversion app. And uh, on there, when you download that, click events and all the Grace Point Church stuff will pop up right there. We're going to be in Matthew 5 today. Are you there? Okay, cool. Now, remember at this point, uh, this is part of Jesus' well-known sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5 through 7. 
And at the beginning, he's starting these Beatitudes things. And so what he was doing was he was bringing his disciples in, his followers. He's bringing them in. He's going to teach them what the kingdom of heaven is like and what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven would be like. Now, meanwhile, other people are gathering around him as well to listen in. Jesus has got a little fame going on. People have heard about him and his miracles, his teachings and stuff. And so people are really gathering around him. And so he begins with these Beatitudes. And so far, he said these countercultural, just weird, upside-down things to these people. He said things like, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. And then he gets to verse 6, and he says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, as a refresher and a reminder to, to remember what blessed means, sometimes we, we translate blessed into the word happy, but I think it's even more than happy. The word blessed means to approve of. The Bible tells us over and over that we can bless God, and it's not that we're doing it in some condescending way, but what we're doing is we're saying we approve of all that you do, God. It's a way for us to praise and to worship God. And now we ask for his blessings on our life. God, would you bless me in this? Would you bless me with that? What we're asking for is his approval. And here's the greatest thing ever. When we have the approval of God, instantly right there, we have the happiness of God as well. So it kind of works together. Make sense? So I want to make sure we all understand that going into it. Now he's going to start describing what this happy or this approved of person looks like. And he goes in verse 6. He says, they hunger and thirst. Let's, let's kind of stop right there and talk about hunger and thirst. We all understand hunger and thirst, right? We get that. Each person here and whoever's ever lived will always or at times be hungry or thirsty. You know what happens when you don't eat for a while. You're sitting in church. Preacher's a little bit long-winded. I get it. Your stomach starts to rumble a little bit. It makes that noise, and then, like, someone around you hears it. You're like, oh, no, no, it's just the bubble guts or whatever that is. Like, mm. and you're hungry. I understand. Or, you know, you, you don't have something to drink for a while, and, like, you know, you, your, your throat gets really tight, and you're a little bit parched, and you, you really need something to drink. So we understand when Jesus is talking about the physical hunger and thirst, we get it. But here's the thing. I'm going to make a wild assumption right now in, in a room right here and online as well, is that we really don't hunger and thirst often, do we? We don't, do we? Let's be honest. We don't. Why? Because the pantry's usually got some food in it. The refrigerator's full. There's a fast food joint right down the street. I mean, like, we, we have all the food we want. But when Jesus said hunger and thirst in that time period, they knew it. Food and water or food and beverage were not readily available for them as it is for us now. And so they, they understood it. We need to work to understand it. And so when Jesus used the word hunger and thirst, he's essentially stating that a person is so hungry and so thirsty, they're at the point of starving and dehydration. Maybe you've never been like that, but I'm sure you've watched a movie or two and you've seen people like thrown into prison and like the conditions are terrible and all of a sudden they're given a little bit of gruel on a plate and they stuff it in their mouth real quick. Or you remember that movie from the 90s? Remember The Fugitive with uh, Harrison Ford in it? Remember that scene where he goes into the hospital and he eats the egg sandwich? I don't know why that always sticks in my mind, but he eats it like he hasn't had food in like forever. Okay, well, I remember that part. Anyway. <laughs> But it's like you're just, you're just absolutely starving, starving. What Jesus is telling us and showing us that we are a starved people. We are a thirsty people. We are created with hunger and thirst, or we are created with desires and longing. I mentioned earlier that our cravings are never satisfied and our thirst are never quenched. Why is that? 
Well, if we start to take it away from our physical and actually to the, to the uh, spiritual or to the realistic, is that we are always hungering and thirsting and wanting to be satisfied in people, places, things, experiences that were never meant to ultimately satisfy us. For many of us today here, right now, our souls, our hearts, our whole beings are so hungry and thirsty right now. We are starved for meaning. We are starved for substance. We are starved for significance. We have an insatiable longing inside of all of us that is never satisfied. As Augustine said again, that our hearts are just restless. It doesn't matter how much stuff we buy. It just never seems to fill it, does it? We're about to wear an Amazon button out on our phone, but it never seems to truly satisfy, does it? No matter how much we earn, no matter how much we eat or drink, no matter how many hours of Netflix we binge watch, no matter our sexual experiences or vacations or even our religious activities, some of those may be great, but they just never seem to completely fulfill our longings and our desires. They leave us empty. Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2, he gives a really good uh, physical illustration I think we can grab a hold of. He said this, Jeremiah 2.12, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Now, listen to these two evils. The first one, for they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And so God is saying, you've turned away from me. You have forsaken me. I am, I'm the place where you're going to get water. I'm the place where you're going to get life. And that's what he means is life right there. So that's the first evil. If we were slow down and think about our own lives, we, we probably have done that a bit as well at times, forsaken God, the living water. And he says, and hewed out cisterns, for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Uh, I, I grew up with a cistern. You guys know what a cistern is? A cistern is basically a hole uh, that water goes into, and that's where you get water for your home and all that. And the idea is what they would be down scratching and clawing with their fingers into the dirt, and their dirt would be a lot like our dirt. So it's like almost concrete. It's one step away from concrete, am I right? And they would just have their scratch nails going and going and going and going at it, but yet there's no water there whatsoever. It's just dry and they're parched, and it's a lot of exhaustion and no return. A lot of exhaustion and no life because we've forsaken. So what would satisfy us? And I went through a list of money and all. What's, what's going to satisfy us? Well, we can all sit here in church and say, well, God is going to be the one that satisfies us. Am I right? We would be right to say that, but Jesus has got, I think, something a little bit more specific that will satisfy the longings of our lives. Look back at our text, Matthew 5, 6. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. He's saying, and he goes, for they will shall be satisfied. So he's giving us the word righteousness. And he said, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we're going to be satisfied. And we believe the words of Jesus, am I right? And so what is, what is righteousness? Well, righteousness is one of those big words from the Bible that Christians can throw around a whole lot and no one know what it, know what it means, Right? And so what does he mean when he says righteousness here? Well, there's one way you could look at righteousness, which would be objective righteousness or uh, 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 like legal righteousness or um, like a standing righteousness that we have with God. Let me explain it like this. Uh, if, if you are a Christian um, before you were saved by Jesus, and by the way, if you're not a Christian, really lean in and listen to this. But if you are a Christian before you were saved by Jesus, you were not right with God, am I right? You were not. You were not right with God. Uh, you only had your righteousness to stand in, in, on your behalf. 
and all you had was basically your life resume. So let's talk about our life resume. Uh, on our life resume, we've got some really good things. You've done some good things in your life, haven't you? I mean, there's that time you helped someone out. Uh, there's the time that where you put someone else first. There was a time where you bought some Girl Scout cookies. You walked someone across the street, and Nickelback came on the radio, and you immediately turned it off. You've done good. Well done. But if we keep looking at our resume, there are some bad things we've done, haven't we? There are times when we put ourselves first, and we have those lies. And there was a time you probably listened at least to the intro of a Nickelback song before you realized it was a Nickelback song. And by omission, that is a sin. And so you sinners. <laughs> and so on your resume, you have some good things and you have some bad things. But here's the unfortunate event for us is that God is completely holy, completely perfect. He has no darkness, no sin in him whatsoever. And what God demands is for our perfection. He demands that we have a perfect, spotless, no blemish, no mistakes, and no sin on our resume. How you doing with that? Not good. And so when we come to that place face-to-face -face with our resume, and then we look at God and what he requires on our resume, we're in trouble. We're toast, literally and figuratively, when we say. But here's the good news. Jesus comes. Jesus lit. He takes on body. He becomes man. He lives perfectly on our behalf, and then he makes us an offer. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this offer. He makes us an offer. He says, guess what? I know your complete resume, even the part that you don't even know yet. I know it all, past, present, and the future. It's not so good. And he says, I'll take my perfect resume, and I'll switch it. And I'll take your resume, and I'll put my name on it. And I'll take my perfect resume, and I'll put your name on it. It's a great deal, right? For us, but Jesus, he has to go to the cross and die for it. But isn't this what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21? He says, for our sake, he made him, being Jesus, to be sin, meaning he made Jesus to be our resume, our sinful resume, who knew no sin, meaning he had a perfect resume. Why did he do this? So that in Jesus, we might become what? Hmm. <laughs> Hang on. I'm setting the trap right now. I just put the cheese on. I'm winding it back. Hang on. I'm going to get you. Hang on. But yeah, and so we may become the righteousness of God. And so that is the legal, objective righteousness of Jesus. Now, with all that said, that's not what Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes. I don't think. I don't think. I think he's talking about a different kind of righteousness. So make sure you're back on Matthew 5. Make sure you got your Bible in your hand because we're really going to roll through this. I, I want you to lean in a little bit because I, I'm going to, you really got to work through your Bible on what I'm getting ready to say. What is the righteousness he's talking about? If it's not that legal objective righteousness, then what is it? Well, when you look back at your Beatitudes, there are eight of them. Am I right? Eight Beatitudes. Now you're doing the math. You're like, there's only six weeks in Lent. How are we going to do eight of them? I don't know. We'll figure it out as we go. If you look at the first beatitude, which will be in verse 3, and the last beatitude, which will be in verse 10, they both end with the same phrase. And what is that same phrase in the last one, the, the, the first and the last one? Say it really loud, really proud. Kingdom of heaven, okay? So what Jesus is doing, Jesus is a master teacher. He's making a brain sandwich for you real quick, so you need to get ready to take a bite of it. And here it comes. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and its inhabitants. Now, if you look closer, it seems like the fourth and the eighth beatitude deal with the same theme. So look at verse 6 and verse 10. What is the theme of the two? Or what do you see that are similar in verse 
6 and verse 10. What's the word? hey now we're beginning to see something. It's giving us a clue to ponder here. The Beatitudes are kind of grouped. The first four and the last four. The first four end with righteousness, and the last four end with what? Righteousness. Now, okay, take a deep breath. You're still with me? You good? Okay, all right. Now, look at verse 3. I want you to see this. Look what's leading up to the fourth beatitude. Look at the first three. Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. What's the next one? Blessed are those who? What's the next one? Blessed are the? Okay, okay, okay. Hear me out on this. Hear me out on this. Hear me out on this. It looks to me like the first three Beatitudes are all about being emptied. You're emptied. When you realize that you're poor in spirit, meaning I can't save myself, my resume is not good enough, I can't do it, I can't earn favor with God with just with my own works and all that, it's an emptying situation, isn't it? And when I mourn over my sin and mourn over the sins of the world and my meekness where I don't take charge or don't use my power when I feel like I want to or vindicate myself or whatever it looks like, it's all about being emptied. To enter the kingdom of God, you must be emptied. God will empty you out in order to become a part of his kingdom. Do you hear me on this? Okay, are you still with me on this? I think this is really fun. Okay, so what happens now, human, when you get empty? What, 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 what reaction, what thing happens in you? You get hungry and you get thirsty. And what fuel now, since we've been emptied of everything else, what fuel now will fill us up? What does it say in verse 6? Hunger and thirst for what? So our food is righteousness. Now, 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 that does not define righteousness yet. That doesn't get there, does it? Just, I'm just stating what it says right here. But that's why Jesus didn't end the Beatitudes after verse 6. Let's keep going. I'm going to suggest the following Beatitudes describe what righteousness is or what Jesus in this scenario is describing what righteousness is, what we should hunger for. Why? Because when we look at the rest of the Beatitudes, uh, Jesus embodies them. And the people of his kingdom should and shall embody, embody them, okay? So look at the next verse, verse 7. Blessed are the what? Verse 8, blessed are the what? Verse 9, blessed are the what? So if the previous verses were about being emptied, what's happened is when we, when we uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're going to be filled up, and these are the things that are going to flow from us. The second set of Beatitudes ends with the other reference of righteousness. Remember that. Only this time it's not a hunger for righteousness, while we were, what we were lacking, but a per being persecuted for righteousness, which we are overflowing from. Does that make sense? So in the context, Jesus is describing righteousness as what? Merciful, purity or pure in heart, and peacemaker. Does that make sense? How do you define righteousness in this text right here, in this context, what Jesus is talking about? Mercy, purity, and peacemaking. And then there's this clue. When you feast and binge drink upon his righteousness, uh, something is going to happen to you. You know what's going to happen to you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness and this overflows from your life? Look at verse 10. What does it say? Blessed are those who are? For what? Boom. There it is right there. For, right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
It's like because you have been emptied, now you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now you're filling up on its righteousness, and the outcome from you is mercy and purity and peacemaking. You're going to get persecuted by the world. Why do we know that, or how do we know that? Because of Jesus, because he was persecuted for that. That's why Jesus, I think, followed up with this, this grand zinger. If you go all the way down to verse 20 in chapter 5, he said this. He says, I tell you, unless you're what? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we were to take this on face value and line our righteousness up with, with what we think righteousness is, then the Pharisees would, would, would uh, exceed our righteousness easily and we would never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? They were the most religious people going externally. Isn't when, when Jesus went after them, isn't, isn't that the, th the things he went after? He says, you guys... You have your own righteousness. You, you have this propped up religious righteousness, self-righteousness, because you lack what? Mercy. Didn't Jesus go after them because they didn't have mercy? They were so judgy towards everyone around them because they lacked, they lacked purity in heart. Sure, they had more morality. They had behavioral purity potentially. But internally, he says, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look great. On the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. Jesus, man, you're talking about dropping some mics. That guy. And then peacemaker. They were just dividing lines all over the place. Not Jesus. He's a peacemaker. That's why Jesus went after them. So put it all together. Righteousness, as Jesus described here, means to be merciful, pure in heart, and to be a peacemaker. Make sense? I think, I think that's right. I think so. You can, I think so. So what does it mean? What does mercy, pure in heart, and peacemaking mean? Well, I'm not going to tip my hand today. I've got to teach that the rest of the rest of the series, so you're going to have to come back for that. But I will say this, like I'm not going to tell you about mercy and all that now. We'll do that later. Uh, but we'll, we'll do this uh, is like when he talks about this righteousness, there are two arenas in which this really come out in, in life. The first arena this comes out would be personal righteousness. And I'm not talking about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is where we're working for God's approval. Uh, the righteousness of Christ is we're working from God's approval. But this idea of like I, I want to look more and more like Christ. I, I want to live as if Christ lived. I want Christ to embody me and to live through me. And so that comes out in our, our lives personally. And again, we'll talk more about that in, in the next two weeks because we're going to walk to these things. Uh, but I want his attitude and his mind and his loves and his truths and his actions and his desires. Or as John said it best in John, in, uh, John 3.30. You don't have to go there. It's a pretty simple one. John 3.30 says this, he must increase or I must decrease. That's what it means for Christ in me. It's like less of me, Jesus, and more of you. And as I hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not just for me. As a matter of fact, as righteousness works in my life, it begins to work through my life. It's not just personal, but I'll give you the second area. It's social. When Jesus used the word righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, it means an interpersonal righteousness that works itself into a righteous life. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness long to live righteously and want the righteousness of God to prevail in the world. That's a lot of righteous right there. <laughs> Basically, this is what it means. We want to live the character of the kingdom, and we want the kingdom of God to come, and we want the world around us to live out the character and nature of God as it was intended to. Isn't that what we long for? If you don't long for it, turn on the news for about two minutes and then turn it off. 
because the world is not as it should be. Am I right? And so it's Christians. Like we're part of this kingdom, but this kingdom is to come. And we want his kingdom to come where he will write all things. And so we long for the And so God has used us as a part of his kingdom agency now, and he will fulfill it completely when he does return. But here's my question, Christian. How's the world doing right now? Well, we, I think we need to begin with us. Our quest for righteousness must lead us to help others and not just seek self-improvement, which is, if I were honest, most discipleship now feels a lot like self-improvement. And it may lead us into being mature Christians, but what, all, what it's leading us into, if you really to, to look at the landscape of our Christianity today, it looks like dull, comfortable, passionless lives guided by our improvements, but not the betterment of the world and others around us. Am I right? You may retort and say, well, I have passions, Ty. But if we take an honest look at our passions, they're typically misguided. Therefore, our possessions, prestige, pleasure, and power, all for self. We hunger for us. Self-improvement. This is why Jesus is telling us and those in his kingdom to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That way it would spill over into life. Martin Luther said it like this. He says, the command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into a desert, but to run out, if that's where you have been, and to offer your hands and your feet, which is interesting. I love when people say, I just want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. You know they got pierced, right? It's like, just saying, you're going to suffer. And your whole body to wager everything you have and can do. What is required is a hunger and thirst for righteousness that can never be curbed or stopped or sated, one that looks for nothing and cares for nothing except the accomplishment and maintenance of the right, despising everything that hinders this end. Now listen, if you cannot make the world completely pious, then do what you can. That means we have a world out there that, that needs to hear about this good news and this kingdom. They need to see action and see it practice out. So how can, how can we hunger and thirst for his righteousness in such a way that fills our lives up and spills over into others? Not there yet, but I'll get there in just a minute. Go back to Matthew 5, 6. We need to finish this last part up. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and he's in the last part, for they shall be satisfied. That, that feels weird. That feels like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because like he says, you're going to hunger and thirst, but you're going to be satisfied. You ever, you ever notice the Bible does that a whole lot? And, and some people call it out like, no, that's a contradiction. No, 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 no. Listen, a lot of times the Bible has this thing called a paradox. And a paradox means you have to hold two things at one time. And I think we can do that. It's kind of like the already and not yet. Like the kingdom of God is at hand, but it's not, you know, it's not yet here kind of deal. You have to hold two things at once. And so when it comes to hunger and thirsting and being satisfied, you have to hold those two things together. And we do this on the daily, don't we? Uh, let me set a scenario up for you. You're social. You like to go to dinner parties. You go to a dinner party. And someone feeds you a really nice meal and, you know, you fill up on it because, one, you want to be respectful, and, two, it's just really tasty. And then all of a sudden, they come out with a canister. And inside this canister, it says Sanders on it. They went to Costco, and they bought those little dark chocolate squares with the caramel in the middle and the sea salt encrusted on the top. Have you been there before? And they're like, you know, hey, would you like one? And you're like, mm, of course I would like one. Thank you very much. And you eat one, but you're already full, but you eat one. What happens a couple minutes later? The canister's there. The top's off. You're smelling it. You know what's going on. What do you want? But aren't you full? Aren't you satisfied? You are. You just want more. Why? Because it's so good. And by the way, 
It's worth a Costco membership if you have not ever had these things before. <laughs> I just cost you like a hundred and some odd dollars for these. Th it's worth it. it. Can I get an amen? If you've had them, you know. But isn't it the same way with Jesus? When you really begin to experience Jesus and commune with Jesus and Jesus like begins to just, just envelop your life, what do you want more of? You want more of him. You taste and you see that the Lord is good. You want more. Isn't that the way how Christian growth or discipleship works? It kind of goes like this. A hunger for Jesus, satisfied by Jesus. I want more of Jesus. See, th this is where Christian life happens. We hunger and thirst for him. That's the reality to Christians. We're, we're called to hunger and thirst for different things than the world hungers and thirsts for. If you notice it, it seems like the world is hungering and thirsting for salt water. You ever had salt water? It's gross. They say that's what kills most people. They're out, you know, stranded in the ocean. They get so thirsty, they start drinking salt water. and just makes them thirstier and drink more of it and actually kills them. It's the same thing with the world around us. Just dying because we're not going for the right thing. A.W. Tozer said this. He says about hungering and thirsting for God, he said, you can have as much of God as you want. We think about that, and we, kind of, we may bristle against it, like, I don't, I don't know about this, but isn't that what Jesus is talking about? We can have as much of him as we want. The question is, are you willing to do whatever it takes to have more of him? Are you willing to get in a place where the Greek language and thirst means where you're completely dehydrated, you're on the brink of death? Are you at a place where you're like, you know what, I just want God. I just want him more and more. I, I hunger and thirst for God. See, this is what Jesus is talking about. Now, I'm the preacher, and you heard a sermon, and you're like, yeah, I want to hunger and thirst for more of God and his righteousness. I get it. But sometimes God has to do something to make that happen. He really does. And it's not that Christians are dead. I don't think Christians are dead, but I think at times that Christians are asleep. We, we And when I say Christian, I mean me. We're asleep a lot of times at the wheel, aren't we? We live in a world that's lulled us to sleep with its comforts, with its convenience and all that. And what God must do is he must wake us up out of our slumber. And God will do this in one of two ways. He'll do it in an, he'll use the negative in order to wake you up. And some of you right now are experiencing the negative of life. You're having financial troubles. You're having marriage troubles. You have a, just a soul trouble. Just like you just, something's just not right inside of you. Maybe some health troubles or whatever. And what God is going to do, he is, he is kind and loving and gracious to use that to wake you up. For some of you, uh, he uses the positive where you're reading God's word and you're looking through it. And the Holy Spirit shows you something that jumps off the page and just causes this hunger and thirst. But nonetheless, nonetheless, God will do whatever it takes to wake you up. So we'll hunger and thirst for him and his righteousness. Um, I was trying to think through how to give a little bit of application in this, this message. And um, so what I want to do is I want to show you just a handful of things that God may use or a handful of things that maybe can, can jumpstart a bit of an appetite for us. Uh, and then we'll have a little bit of silence together. So let me, uh, let me help you with this. What are some ways that we can hunger and thirst for God's righteousness? The first one is this, fast. I know we're in the season of Lent, but I think, it's, I think it's wise for us to keep talking about fasting. Fasting is not just for Lent, am I right? It's part of our, it should be a part of our life, but John Piper said this, what we hunger for most, we worship. Uh, I know I recently taught on this, but Jesus is talking about hunger and thirsting here. And the reality is that we are so full, so how could we add anything else? How could we hunger and thirst for Jesus when we're so full of everything else, when we're being so quenched by something else? It's hard to want something else. Now, Many of you are fasting, and here's my question. 
how's it going? How's it going? Is it curbing your appetite so you hunger and thirst for God more? Or maybe this is your fasting experience thus far. Maybe, maybe you just freed up some time. Maybe you lost a few pounds. Maybe you're a little bit more sober-minded than normal. But when it comes to you communing with God and hungering and thirsting for his righteousness and, and things of the kingdom, it hasn't happened yet. And so perhaps it might be good for a mid-Lent uh, adjustment in your fasting. It may be an opportunity for you to make some adjustments and to change some things up. See, here's a good soul check, potentially. If you're not hungry and thirsty for God while gathering here on Sunday, singing and hearing the word, perhaps because you're starving yourself throughout the week and you're really not hungering and thirsting and, and partaking of of the things of God throughout the week. So I would say this, why not uh, maybe adjust your fast a little bit to where you're adding a little bit more of the things of God in there, like Bible reading, which leads me to the second point, feast. You fast, and then we feast. We feast. Don't just remove something like phone, television, food, alcohol, or whatever, and not feast on God's word. We, meet, we must feast on his word. Do you know what his, his word says? His word says it's good. It says it's satisfying the soul. The psalmist says, the psalmist says taste and see that it's good. The Bible says it, it, it is life for us. We don't just read it, but it reads us. Martin Luther, again, he said it like this. For the Bible is a remarkable fountain. The more one draws and drinks of it, the more it stimulates thirst. There is nothing in the world that can come close to satisfying us like the Bible. Everything else is just knockoff. Did you guys have a frugal mom who went to the grocery store and bought the little packets of grape aid? And you're like, Mom, we're Kool-Aid people. Don't buy this knockoff. Or like, you know, someone goes to the store and get the B2 and not the A1. You like the knockoff steaks. Like, no. The same, the, everything else out there is counterfeits and will not satisfy like God's word. I could stand up here until I'm absolutely blue in the face and tell you to read God's word, feast on his word, listen to him and get a reading plan and get a place and set a time and it's going to be such a benefit to you and it's how we learn how to be a human and how we learn how to relate to God and relate to others and relate to the world around us. I could tell you how it's going to speak into your life and be life-giving and all that. But I thought today the best thing I can do is just warn you. I'm going to warn you. You will never hunger and thirst for righteousness outside from the word of God. You just won't. It's prideful to think so. You're like, no, 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 no. I know how to be merciful and I know how to be pure in hearted and I know how to like care for the world around me and be a peacemaker. And there are lots of people trying to do that apart from God and his word. But listen to me. You will not hunger and thirst for his righteousness apart from God's word. That's why Jesus says later on in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter six, he talks about like, you don't worry about what clothes you're going to wear and what food you're going to eat and all this. But he says in Matthew 6, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We pursue him. Let me give you the third one. Family. Listen, you're not going to hunger and thirst for righteousness apart from one another. We need one another. You can't do this on your own. Solo Christianity doesn't work. This highly individualistic thing is not working. You need a group, you need a people, you need a family, whether it be a community group, a cohort, people you get with and pray with. You just need people with you to spur you along, as the Bible says. You can't do it alone. Look at me. You can't 
do it alone. Stop it. You need people around you. You need the family. More than just sitting here looking this way on Sundays. You need to be face-to-face with some other Christians, encouraging you and challenging you and loving you and caring for you to, to be hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God. Let me give you one more. Future. Earlier I mentioned that uh, the righteousness of God has a social element to it. Um, we, we, want to, we want to see the righteousness of Jesus flood the earth. It says in Habakkuk 2.14, says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But it's not like that now, is it? It's not there yet. But we must not give up. We must keep pushing and living out these kingdom ways until his kingdom comes. I want to read this last verse, and we're going to do a little silence. I want you to, if you wouldn't mind, I want to read it over you. I want you to close your eyes, if you just humor me in this. And I want you to kind of get a vision for the future of what this is all going to look like. Because sometimes when you see the future, it helps you live in the present. The book of Revelation 7 says it like this. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the living springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's one day we'll be completely satisfied in the Lord. Completely, our thirst will be quenched in Him. And He will come and make all things right. Let's just take a little bit of time and a little bit of silence here. And perhaps the Lord is being gracious to you today and He's showing us where we're hungering and thirsting for something other than Him and His righteousness. Maybe it's power, prestige, possessions, it's money, it's sex, it's experiences, it's whatever it is. Maybe he's showing us something. Maybe, may we be humble enough to confess that and agree with him and return to him. Maybe in, just in a bit of silence, it might be good to ask God, God, would you, would you grow my desires? Would you redirect my hunger and my thirst for you and and your righteousness and your kingdom? Let's take a little time to be silent and just meet with the Lord and respond to whatever he's telling us today. I'll bring us out in just a minute.
God, so often we want you to show up in the earthquake, the thunder, the fire. It's often you show up in the silence. We believe you speak. We believe you speak through your word and through your spirit. Speak deep into our souls. And so, Father, the question is not whether you are speaking, but it's whether we're listening. And so, God, I just pray that you would give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you, and a heart to understand. And so, Father, may we be a people who hunger and thirst for your righteousness. As we do that, may it not only have an effect in us, but may it have an effect to us as a family and also to the world around us where we would be merciful to one another. That's a part of the righteousness. Got to where we would have some purity in heart, motives, and just our responses. And Father of all people, may we be peacemakers because we've received peace with you because of what Christ has done. To grow that ever, ever so more in our hearts and our lives. God, as you do that, would you just bring just a supernatural amount of joy to the house of the Lord here, in our lives, in our homes, in our communities? It would be for our good and the good of the world around us. And Jesus, would all this be for your glory and your namesake alone? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.